Welcome to the Gears and Grind podcast, where the best and brightest entrepreneurs, automotive personalities, and innovators share their stories about how they built their empires and impart lessons for you to do the same with your host, Joshua Bennett. Welcome to the Gears and Grinds podcast, season two. On this episode of the podcast, I have Ben Silver. Uh, ben, do you mind just giving my audience and my listeners uh, a little bit of a backstory and a little bit of an elevator pitch about what you do and and uh, kind of why you're on the podcast today? So I am a uh, magician and certified sommelier. Uh, I work part-time as a wine director and floor sommelier at a restaurant where I also do magic. Um mm. So my job is pretty much to find you the right bottle of wine and entertain you and then also run the wine program, do all the selections uh, of the wines. And then I also do wine and magic dinners for uh, corporate groups and just straight magic uh, also for corporate groups and private parties all over the country. So I know today our focus is going to be about wines and wines for holidays and pairings and more kind of wine focused. So I'm happy to talk about that. And that's kind of cool because I live in Canada and the province which I live in, we have a liquor license board that just sells our wines, our beers, spirits, that type of thing. So I actually had the opportunity to actually work for them for a very, very short time. But I was able to learn a little bit more about wine and, and kind of why people really enjoy it and, and kind of just the complexities behind it. But what is a sommelier? I'm just kind of curious. Sure. So a sommelier... Uh, uh, it's it's a French term, and it's technically the word is sommelier is is a wine steward. So it is the person who presents uh, and serves you wine, and helps you pick out a wine at a restaurant to pair with your food. So that's the main uh, job description of a sommelier. Um, throughout time, now sommeliers work as distributors uh, or suppliers, you know, in the wine in the wine industry. Or, or they work at the winery to help educate guests. Mm-hmm. So, but a classic job description for sommelier is a wine steward at a restaurant to help you pick the correct wine or pair your food uh, with wine because wine can be so confusing, especially um, when they're just naming the varietal, you know, they're just naming the bottle out of the, mm-hmm. the, after the region opposed to the varietal, which is how European wines are, are labeled for the most part. So you're saying that sommeliers are, are typically found in restaurants um, and, and they kind of help people uh, pick their wine. Like, is it offered as a service or can people just say, hey, look, I, I need help with wine and then the restaurant has a sommelier on staff? Like, how does that work? Good question. So it's more at, uh, at higher end or fine dining restaurants where they'll have a, a sommelier on staff, a floor sommelier. And at those restaurants, the servers should have a very good grasp of wine knowledge in general. However, if they have more questions, then the sommelier can come over and, and help answer those. The sommelier is going to know a lot more, especially if he's also the wine director, will know a lot more about those bottles than the, the servers will, since he's the one who's purchasing them, tasting them, buying them, is more educated in, in the wine field. Sometimes a sommelier, if, there's, if they have time to do it, uh, we'll also kind of go greet the table at the beginning and let them know that they're available. There is a sommelier available, you know, to do pairings for them or help them find the wine or, or get a drink order or cocktails. Those sommeliers also have to be very versed in, in cocktails after dinner drinks, uh, some cigar knowledge. 
Uh, things really? Like cigar that. knowledge too? Yeah. So on the second level test, there's some cigar questions you have that's, to know about. That's kind of cool, actually. That's kind of cool. So that would be like your very, very formal wear? Yeah, I mean, I'm... A little more laid back or like... So for the most part, small yays will be in a suit and tie. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, even on the second level test, I got, deduct, you know, deducted or deduced a point for not having my jacket closed. So they want wow. your jacket buttoned and, and clean because it's also for reasons as far as if you're serving a meal, you don't want a tie going in someone's plate yeah. or cleaning over a table. So it, it makes sense. Uh, and it also depends on the program. I'm sure there's other programs where you don't need a tie, but, you know, definitely a suit or, you know, you have to be dressing the part that you're professional as far yeah. as at least a collared shirt, a sport coat, slacks. During the course, do you, do you guys cover the history of wine? And do you mind just telling me a little bit more about like where wine even originated? Like what country, what ingredients actually go into wine and how the ingredients kind of vary? Uh, we'll start off with like the history of wine. Um, so I'm, I'm a certified sommelier through the Court of Master Sommeliers. So there's different certifying guilds. That's one of the more established and, and accredited ones. They do not teach you about the background or history of wine or actually give you any kind of courses until you get to the third level, the advanced level, where there's a workshop to train you to come take that test, which is ridiculously hard. So they kind of give you a workbook and say, learn this, start studying as much about wine as you can, different references, materials, books to, to reference. And so it's from those books that I know you know, a rough answer about the history of wine that I can give you. Uh, I mean, there's wine back in, in biblical times. I mean, one of the, the things that, you know, God says to uh, Noah when he gets off the ark is to, you know, plant vines and yeah. bring in a harvest for wine. So um, I d am not the most uh, biblical or religious person, so I can't tell you when that happened, B.C., A.D., whatever it was, but that was, you know, in the Bible, there's, they mentioned wine. Uh, and then also, of course, in, in Greek and Roman cultures, they mention wine. So one of the wine stories I heard is that there was uh, in uh, Mesopotamia, which is now Iran or, or what was Persia, there was a prince whose name was uh, Jamshid, and one of his harem was kind of being bothersome for him. So he was trying to, to kill her. And so they found some grapes that have fermented. It was all frothy and gross from the fermentation. They figured they would poison her. And they made her drink that, and opposed to, to dying, she actually got excited and bubbly and, and was having a great time. And they said, oh, that's really interesting. What's, what's going on with that? So that was one of the stories I've heard about the birth of wine as far as it was an accident. The juice fermented. She drank it, looked like a, like a great time, and then they're like, we want to have a good time too. <laughs> so, um, and then the, there's a second question on there. Um, as far as the, how the wine gets its flavors. Yeah. Okay. So, um, there's only one ingredient in wine and, and that's grapes. Mm. Um, so all those different flavors are coming, uh, from different nuances. Uh, so also depending on the grape will have a certain kind of signature flavor profile. And then during the fermentation, what happens is say the molecular structure of a, of a peach is X, Y, Z, four. During the fermentation, a, uh, a Riesling grape or a Chardonnay grape uh, or a Sauvignon Blanc grape 
may take on the chemical compound of XYZ4. It mm. just mimics that during the fermentation process. So that's why you will be tasting peach um, yeah. because it's changed into that molecular structure of what peach wow. would taste like. So, but there's no peaches added to a wine. It's always going to be just grapes. And then also depending on how it's fermented, what kind of yeast they're using, what other uh, plants, herbs um, are around the vineyard site um, may impact that, what type of wood you're using, uh, how much wood, between if it's new oak, um, neutral oak, one year removed, if it's American oak, French, French oak, or burnt, yeah, exactly, yeah, the toasting yeah. level, if it's a light, medium, you know, dark toast on the barrel. So all of those uh, lend to, to give, you know, flavor compounds. So Cabernet Sauvignon being one of the most, uh, you know, popular grapes, without a lot of wood or that kind of toasting or, or new French oak, it has a very vegetal kind of green quality to it. Yeah. So if you do give it a nice amount of wood, then you start getting that mocha, vanilla, you know, nutmeg, cinnamon, spice, things like that come out of it. But just by itself, it's going to be more, more green, a little more, I think green is the right way to say it, just under right type of uh, component to it. Okay, so what you're basically saying to me is that every single bottle of wine just has one ingredient, which is grapes. And then depending on how the grape is grown or, or raised or treated and making that process into turning the grape into wine and that's how when like for example if you're looking for like more of a floral aroma then what will happen is it'll take more of a aromatic flavoring is what i guess you're saying certain varietals in general are going to be more aromatic uh by by nature so like torontes out of argentina is very uh floral gewürztraminer is very floral uh viognier is very floral sauvignon blanc is floral so it's just certain characteristics of the actual grape and the type of of the grape will give different flavor profiles in general and then depending on the the aspect of the location the drainage the soil uh the sun hours as far as how ripe that those grapes can get to give it more sugars all those will do different complexities also how much ton per acre is planted there how much they're pruning which means cutting off um on the actual vines though you're getting more concentration for a smaller amount of berries opposed to vines that have not been pruned so you're just going to get a lot more actual grapes but it will not be as concentrated so i mean it goes very complex and deep into the winemaking process and what product they want to make at what price point yeah. for what audience and as you were speaking i'm like it's very 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 complex <laughs> yeah the more you want to learn about wine the more it's ridiculously complex so yeah. yeah how can people it's a good nice neutral wine that won't necessarily break the bank what, what are you what are your top picks of, of course and all right so i'll kind of just talk about how to find better wines in general and then certain regions that are good for for better pricing uh, and the varietals that are good for better pricing so if we're using California wines as an example, yeah, the more specific the region is, the more expensive it's going to be and the more, uh, we'll say, quality-oriented it would be. So, okay. for example, if it just says on the bottle it's from California, that means they can source the grapes from anywhere in California, all right? And that bottle is probably going to be on a retail cost from 5 to $10, Yeah. all right? And they're probably using methods to make it maybe a little bit of residual sugar a little bit sweet it's kind of easy to like but there's not a lot of depth to it mm. we'll call some of these wines like pop music 
you know, like it's easy to like, it's friendly, but there's not much behind it. You know, there's not, yeah. it's not a yeah. songwriter. It's yeah. just, it's just, okay, I can drink it. I can listen to this. It's background music, whatever it would be. Yeah. Now say we're going from California and now say we go to, uh, we'll say Napa Valley. Okay. Yeah. Now in Napa Valley, all the wines have to be from Napa and that alone is going to be more expensive. So Napa is probably the most expensive wine region in the world at this point. And it's just, serious? it's also just the cost of, wow. of land there is so expensive. All right. So, and then also the cost of labor. So think about what a minimum wage would be in California versus a minimum wage in Argentina or Chile mm-hmm. or Spain. So those are also a factor into, into that, but we'll say we're now we're in Napa. So, in Napa, now we're paying, we'll say anywhere from $20 to $30 for a bottle that's Napa Valley Appalachian. And that can be anywhere in Napa. Now, if we want to get more concentrated, we're going to go on a, an AVA, which is the American Viticultural Area. So mm-hmm. now there's about 19 or 20 of these in Napa. And they would be called Oakville, Rutherford, American Canyon, uh, Howell Mountain, Yonville, all these different little sub regions in Napa. So now if we're in Oakville, now it's going to be more expensive because the grapes are coming from just the plots of land in Oakville. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be on the Valley floor. So there's more sun. Uh, you're going to get more, more ripeness opposed to if you're on mountain fruit, which is going to be a little bit cooler, a little bit windier. So now we're there. Now, if we're in a single vineyard in Oakville, now we're even more expensive. Now we're probably talking a couple hundred dollars a bottle like two to $500 a bottle. And also what comes with that is that there's only so much of that wine. There's only so many acres that can be planted to make that bottle. So maybe there's three or 500 cases made. So now you have a lot of, of rich people who really enjoy wine, who want to collect this. It's kind of an, a, like a, a collecting piece, a show piece, and also something really special to drink. Mm. Because there's it's like a supply and demand. There's only so much of that made, opposed to a a, a wine that's called California Appellated that might have an eighty thousand case production because yeah. they can get the grapes from anywhere, opposed to just getting it from four acres of land. So yeah. things like that go into how you want to find a bottle. So the the easy way I would say after that whole story is if you can the more information you see on the bottle from that region, the better. So if it says also, if it says a state grown, that's special, opposed to a state bottled. You can bottle any grapes at an estate. That doesn't mean anything. That's like a trick word. If it's a state grown, that means their farmers and their team are growing those grapes, which means they care more about it. So that's a good sign. But the, the more you could see on that label. So if we're in uh, Argentina, it would say Argentina uh Uco Valley and then Mendoza and then if it went even deeper into a single vineyard now it's gonna be more expensive but in general South American wines are going to be better better value wines so mm-hmm. on the, following up the second part of that question wines from Argentina wines from Chile uh will probably give you the best best value for what you're getting as far as varietal um mm-hmm. they have really good Sauvignon Blanc really good Pinot Noir really good Cabernet Sauvignon uh, nice red blends, uh, Malbec, of course, from Argentina. Spain also is a terrific, uh, terrific value for great wines. Uh, Tempranillo coming out of Rioja and Ribera de Duero uh, are fantastic. And you can usually find 
this uh, supply, uh, sublime bottle for 20 to $30, which that kind of flavor or profile out of Napa would be in the 60 to $80 range, just because of all the different factors um, going into it. Wow. So what you're saying is more that you localize with the wine, the, the typically the better and the more expensive it'll be. The, the more it gets into being a craftsman wine, yeah. opposed to being a, like a generic wine. Also at those craftsman wines, they're planting, you know, different amounts. So, you know, in, in Napa and Oakville, say we're at that single vineyard, they're probably going to get four tons per acre mm. or two tons per acre. So they're not getting as much from there. So the berries are very concentrated. But a an everyday wine may have, you know, 10 to 15 tons an acre. So you're going to grab a lot more from it, but the complexity will be less. Okay. You know, in the old movies, when people would be like, oh, oh bring, oh, bring a nice bottle of wine, and they'd be like, oh, 1947 was a good year. Uh, what does that actually mean? So the vintage is just showcasing what the weather was like that year in that region. And there's a lot that goes into that. So the vintages uh, definitely change and they definitely impact the, the wine. Um, so it, it depends on, on the rain, like how much rainfall came, when did the rain come, if there was a drought, how long did that last for? Um, because the vines will struggle. You want them to struggle, but you don't want them to struggle too much. Like there's a, there's a part that can happen in 2017, there was a heat spike in, in Napa and the actual kind of growing or photosynthesis kind of shut off out of like a shock to the vine. It was so hot. So that kind of can impart a kind of a green characteristic uh, in wines. And it was just because it was so hot for so long. So the different conditions of that year and then around harvest, if there's any, uh, if there's rain around harvest, now the grapes are going to start to, you know, fatten up and swell up and dilute. So we don't want that. So maybe if you're about to pick and it's about to start raining, then you get your crew and you're like, we're picking right now because I don't want these wines to, to get overly diluted with water. So just between the weather conditions, sun hours, you know, harvest time uh, conditions, it's all that that's what we're tasting when we're tasting different vintages, what the weather was like that year. Um, and then also what kind of crop was yielded. So 2015 was a drought vintage in Napa. So there was less fruit that was available. The, the actual purity of the fruit was great, but they got about 60% of what a normal harvest would, would bring in. Yeah. So you normally yeah. got a hundred tons. You only got 60 tons that year. So again, if it's a really good wine that got a great score from 2015, there's just less of it out there again. So that can make it more expensive because now people want it or to collect it, to enjoy it, but there's just less made. So that would be another thing that imparts, you know, pricing. That actually clears up a lot for, especially for me. Cause I was like, how do, how do they even know what a good year was when they were or or when they were young or, or when they didn't even know and then they're able to kind of figure that out. So now I'm more diving into more of the holidays and people are trying to get stuff ready for Christmas and, 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 you know, entrepreneurs are, are giving back to, are, are gifting things to their suppliers like wines and chocolates and, and just saying thank you for doing business with us for a, for another year. Um, what do you suggest um, in, in the case of wine and, and, and what would you, and what would you, um, 
do in, in if you were in uh, their position and, and, what, and what kind of wines would you would you gift other people? So that's a, that's, that's a great question and a, a, a kind of a complex question. So it's a real shame if you spend $100 or $200 on a bottle of wine or maybe more and you give to someone who doesn't know anything about wine. Yeah. Because the testament is lost. They may not store it correctly. They might drink it right away when they've already been drinking that night and not appreciate it. Or, or it might be a wine that's supposed to age for 20 or 30 years or it needs, you know, a couple hours to decant. So right now, you know, 2016 is a current release for Bordeaux. It's a fantastic vintage, but you would want to at least let it sit for four or five hours before drinking it, or let it sit for 10 years in a cellar. Wow. Because it's going to take time for the fruit to kind of show what, mm. how beautiful it is. So if you just gave a bottle that was, $150 to someone who doesn't know about it, they'd be like, oh, okay. And they drink it. They're like, this isn't good because it's all the fruit is buried under the earth and the, the herbs and all the secondary components. So that's one thing. So know your audience. If you're going to mm. gift a bottle of wine, like know, know who you're gifting it to. That's the main thing. Um, and if you're just bringing it for a house party, you know, sometimes I want to bring something that I want to drink also, but then how many people are, are you sharing that with 12 yeah. people? Are you going to have half a glass of wine with a wine you really want to drink? Um, maybe not just maybe bring something that's going to be, or if you're someone who really enjoys wine, but you're with an audience who doesn't as much, they might want something with more fruit or maybe some residual sugar. So I would kind of, if you're gifting wine, know, know who you're gifting it for and how much they'll understand or appreciate it and then and then you know gift accordingly okay and then I'll, i can talk also just about some good you know wine pairings for for thanksgiving and oh oh go right ahead i, I actually yeah. you know what that, that that was that was just that was just so good that was just about to be that was just about to be my next question great actually so go for it <laughs> yeah so so for thanksgiving and and like christmas you know meals dinners I mean, bubbles are always going to be good. So either if it's champagne or it's a, you know, Cremant d'Alsace. Cremant just means sparkling wine coming from somewhere else in France. So Cremant de Bourgogne would be from Burgundy or from Alsace. Or you can get a California sparkling wine. Or you know, I'm sure you may even have some sparkling wine up in, uh, in your region. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there's climate that can actually work for those type of wines. Mm. So sparkling wines are good. They're very food friendly. They're very festive. Um, bubbles are good. They pair with with a lot of different foods, so that's a good way to start the evening off. Um, Rieslings, which you probably have up in your area, um, are done from dry to sweet and really good food wines. So that's really nice, especially if you're pairing against kind of cranberry sauce or sweet potatoes. Things are going to be kind of sweet. So Rieslings from from Germany, from from Canada, from uh, Finger Lakes in New York, mm. uh, from uh, Alsace in in France, all be a good way to go uh, pinot gris also a good way to go from oregon these are white wines that we're speaking about right now but pinot mm. gris from oregon from alsace again uh, maybe from california would be nice food friendly wines easy drinking they're not going to be stealing the show they're just kind of playing really well into the into the meal and then for red wines i think pinot noir and zinfandel are kind of ways to go Pinot Noir really good with with ham with pork, 
with turkey, it's not going to be too heavy, tan, too overbearing, exactly too heavy. Yeah. So uh, California Pinot Noir would be really nice. Uh, a real burgundy that, again, if we're talking burgundy, we want to be somewhere where it's not just burgundy. Now it's in uh, Cote de Nuit. And then maybe in Cote de Nuit, now we're in you know, Gevry Chambertin, like in a, in a village there. But those red burgundies take about seven to 10 years to start to open up. And those bottles start around, you know, $80 or so uh, wow. in American currency. So if you have it like that, then great. Then splurge uh, for a nice burgundy. But those would be really good for pairing. And then Zinfandel, if you want something a little bit, a little bit hardier, uh, works well pretty with the, tur- with the turkey. Uh, if you're doing lamb, meats, things like that, then the Zinfandel will pair nice. It's still kind of rustic, still has a nice zing to it. Uh, especially with like cranberry, that would be a nice pairing. So those are my kind of picks. So it would be Sparkles, Riesling, Pinot Gris, uh, Pinot Noir, and Zinfandel. Good to know. (laughs) That's very good to know, actually. Um, So my last question, um, I mean, actually, official question anyway, is, uh, and and you kind of, touched on it a little bit um how do you become a sommelier i know that in the beginning of the podcast you kind of went into detail but like is there really any way that you if you or i am in in toronto um just kind of give us a generalization of, of like what the process would be and then maybe people can fill in the blanks if they if, if they are filling the specifics of the, de- of the details um um if they want to go down, down that path so if you're going to be a sommelier and actually work the job as a sommelier in a restaurant I mean, you should already probably be working in a restaurant. So, and if you don't work at a restaurant, then start working in a restaurant. You'll probably have to work way up as a, as a busboy or a dishwasher and then into a, a server or a barback or a bartender. But having all this wine knowledge without having people skills or without knowing how a restaurant works, it doesn't really make sense. You can't just have all this wine knowledge and be like, hey, I'm a sommelier, but I've never worked in a restaurant, don't know how the computer works, don't know how a restaurant works. So that's that's one part of it. And then say you're already in a restaurant and you want to start the sommelier process. I actually have a colleague who's a server who's just starting this. So you want to sign... Again, if you want to be sommelier, you can... Just be working in a restaurant, get that position, learn about wine yourself, and then have that job. I mean, it's technically a job, so you don't have to be accredited for it, but if you have the credentials, it definitely helps job security and validation for, for your knowledge. But if you do want to do that, again, I'm through the Court of Master Sommeliers. Mm. They do testing uh, throughout the country, I would say every weekend. So in San Diego, it's probably here. Uh, you know, two or four times a year where there's a test. And so you'll go and take the test at your local hotel where they're going to be doing it, or you would travel to another state uh, to do it or a different region or a different city. So as soon as you say, I want to, I've become a small yay, you'll go and sign up for that test. Uh, and that the first one is called the level one um, sommelier. Hmm. And that's the quarter master sommeliers. I think that test is $700. Whoa. And that is a two day course. So they send you a workbook and they say, know all this, that 
workbook's probably four inches thick. Um, and it's meant to be overwhelming because wine is overwhelming and, uh, and there's a lot to learn. And it's kind of the thing where if you, if you learn all that, that test will be really easy. But if you don't give it the respect, it won't make any sense. So you do that. You sign up for that a couple months in advance. I would give it four or five months. Learn that stuff. I'll recommend some other books as well at the end of this. And then you'll go take that, that test. But they actually teach you at that level how to taste like a sommelier because a sommelier is supposed to have this gift to blind taste wine uh, and then and tell you what it is. So just by smelling the wine and tasting it, I should be able to tell you the region, the soil, the varietal, what the grape is, um, the vintage, uh, you know, all of that, just, uh, you know, how much wood was there, that type of thing, just from smelling and tasting it, which takes a long time to kind of build up the database in your, in your brain to be able to figure out what that, what that is. Uh, and with time, it, it starts to make a lot of sense. So they actually teach you how to blind taste wine uh, for about 24 wines over two days. It's 12 wines each day. And master sommeliers uh, actually can give you the course. And at the end of that, you'll take a 72-question test, and you need to get 48 right, or I believe it's 60%. And this is – I took my level one over six years ago, so I'm not exactly sure now if that's – the same breakdown, but that's how it was when I, when I did it. Um, after you get that level one, uh, sommelier, uh, you now have a really good grasp of wine in general, as far as how it's made, uh, the, the winemaking techniques, the different varietals of the world. And now if you want to get a level two, uh, you will sign up again. And that is another couple hundred dollars. This test is more, uh, focused on specific regions. Uh, again, you have now you have to know uh, spirits, you know, alcohol, after dinner drinks, cigars, um, and getting a lot more focus into subregions of of wine. And again, maps and and laws and different. Uh, like for example, you know, by law in in Italy, like Chianti Classico versus Chianti Classico Reserva has to spend a certain amount of time in wood and then a certain amount of time in bottle. And same thing with in Rioja, as far as reserve, like Crianza, Reserva, or Grand Reserva, all spend a different amount of time in wood and in bottle before release. Mm -hmm. So just knowing things like that for the entire world and their different laws and labels and jurisdictions. So it gets pretty intense. And then you also have to take a, you do a blind tasting of one red and one white and tell them again, the different flavor profiles, if there was wood, uh, residual sugar versus dry, um, the soils, the, uh, the climate, the grape, and the region. And then you also do a, a tactical service to a uh, master sommelier where they're going to ask you about wines, pairings, uh, see how you can open a bottle, how you serve it, how you present it, and kind of how you think on your feet. So that's a level two process, and I passed that about five years ago. Uh, in October. Thank you. And, um, and that's where I am as, as of now. So that's as far as I can speak on that. Pretty much if you want to do it, you have to do a couple of things. If you want to get to the certified sommelier thing is first just start drinking and tasting a lot of wine, more tasting than drinking. You want to be tasting, 
writing notes and spitting the wine out. If you are getting drunk, you will get less focused and then you will not remember <laughs> what you're doing. But going to like yeah. a wine bar, having them blind taste you, yeah. taking notes on it, and then trying to, you know, call and see how close you're getting on that. Also, mm-hmm. books I'll recommend uh, would be Windows on the World. It's by Kevin Zorali. You can okay. get it off Amazon. It's less than $20. Windows on the World. Uh, great book. Very easy to, to, to kind of jump in and, and to read. So that book in conjunction with that workbook would be really good. There's also a great audio book that I got off, off Audible. It's called uh, A Guide to Wine. Uh, author is Julian Curry. And that's a really good, easy to listen to interesting book about wine. That's actually where I got that Prince Jam Cheat story uh, from earlier. So that goes over a whole background of wine. So those two, I'd say, would be the best resources as far as the getting into it. And then as you you grow, then more resources will become available. Also, if you have other wine enthusiasts and, and groups that you can study with or drink with or share that passion with, then that'll be good. Hmm. to kind of continue that knowledge okay uh guys i'm going to link everything all the links to a a local sommelier up in up up here in canada and then i'm going to do some digging around and see if ben can help me out with that and see if we can find a couple links to to american sommelier associations and see if we can find um See if, see if we can get uh, links to the books and anything else that that's related to to wine and to kind of give you guys a, a small taste of of, of what's going to go down and, and, what, and what and what being a sommelier is all about, um, and that and that will kind of give you guys a good grasp of what's going on. Uh, ben, uh, where can where can people find you on Instagram and social media and that type of thing? Sure. So my, I guess brand is Ben Silver Magic. So. That's on Instagram. It'd be Ben Silver Magic. Google type in Ben Silver Magic. My website is bensilvermagic.com. So that's the easiest way to find me. I try to keep it streamlined. Uh, and then you can follow me. And I do have uh, my wines of the month as far as a little newsletter I was doing for a bit for kind of tell you the best value for a different price point from a different region. So I did that for a little bit and see if I can get back into doing it. It's just been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of shows lately. So doing the business aspect of, of, of it kind of falls behind sometimes. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. And then feel free to, to email me at Ben at Ben silver for wine questions or recommendations. Or if you need a magician, I mean, I travel all over the country as long as the client's paying or you're the corporation's paying, I'll do a wine magic dinner for you guys. So just let me know and uh, I'll be there and make it the most memorable dinner of your life. That's cool. That's cool. All right. All right. All right, Ben. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciated it. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Yeah, you too. And uh, Merry Christmas. All right. Appreciate it. That about wraps up today's episode. Did you like what you heard today? 
Well, there are many more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Do you feel like reaching out? Connect with Joshua on Instagram at JJE underscore Bennett for more information about the podcast. If the episode spoke to you, please leave a review, voice message, or comment on either any podcast platforms, Anchor or Instagram. Keep moving forward. 